Well, I don't know about you, but this was a really bizarre week for me. It started out great last Sunday as we spent time in the book of Philippians together, thinking about what it means to find peace in the storms of life. And we capped it off that evening with a, a wonderful foundations class with some people exploring uh, what Mercy Hill is, is about. And Monday was my day off, and so today I was going to get caught up and work in the garden. So I put my headphones in, turn on the podcast, and I was going at it. And I made the mistake of checking social media, and I saw that there was a school shooting. And so I turned social media back off and went back to doing what I was doing and had a really enjoyable day for the rest of the day, just being in beautiful weather and beautiful creation and making sure my tomato plants were on their way. And that night, before I went to bed, I clicked back online, and I saw the school shooting happened in Nashville and at a Christian school. And it just caused me to click through and see what had happened. And I saw it happen in a place called Covenant Presbyterian Church. And I happen to know some Presbyterians who live in Nashville. And so I just looked a little bit further. And I saw that it happened at a school that was connected to this church. And a shooter walked in, as you know, and shot six people, three adults and three beautiful children. And then I was stunned because it showed a picture of the pastor and his wife, and I actually know them. And it was weird to see Chad and Jada Scruggs' family posted all over the news, pictures taken from their social media accounts that were meant primarily for friends and family. To see it up on national media outlets was a bit jarring. And our personal connection to them happened through a same network of campus ministries that I used to be a part of. And Chad and Jana, Jada actually brought a, a team down to Peru, and we lived there. Um, they were working with students at SMU and, uh, and, and served alongside us in Peru for a week. And so it was, it was jarring, and when Heather came into the room, I, I showed her this news, and we were just we were both shocked just trying to find the details out. And It's one thing when a shooting happens and you don't know anyone connected to it. It's still terrible and tragic, but it hits differently when you know the people who, who are affected by it. And we both went to, to bed that night weeping, we prayed for the family and the church, kids at the school, their families, and got up on, on uh, had a, really had a, a restless night. Uh, woke up on Tuesday morning, and I took her to work because our car was still not fixed yet. And, um, and we were just, we were heavy and grieving. And Tuesday mornings is really the first day in my flow of the week where I sit down to work on the passage for the next Sunday. And I knew the passage that was coming up, and I didn't want to work on it because... To be honest, I'd never really gone that deep in this passage before, and I thought it was just telling us to think happy thoughts. And I didn't have happy thoughts to think at that moment. I had, I had heavy thoughts, grievous thoughts, terrible thoughts. And I texted Heather, and I said, I'm, my heart is heavy. And I said, the tears are just below the surface. And she said, you need to let them out. And, um, and I didn't want to, because I don't like to lose control that way. And uh, I came across this quote by Dale Carnegie, if we think happy thoughts, we will be happy. If we think miserable thoughts, we will be miserable. And my thought was along these lines, you've got to be kidding me. <clears throat> to meet the tragedy of this world and just kind of gloss over it and say, just think happy thoughts, is in some ways a very cruel thing to say. I find much more comfort in the words of the sage of Ecclesiastes who said, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And so 
I basically took Tuesday off because I couldn't get into the mind, uh, mindset to, to dig into this passage. As I mentioned, I, I, I had a misconception of what it was teaching. And um, finally on Wednesday, I kind of wrestled myself back into it and said, I got to dial in on this. I got to figure out what this passage is teaching because we gather again <laughs> in Sunday in a few more days. It's really interesting how regularly Sunday comes around. And so, uh, <clears throat> so I was like, all right, I'm going to sit down and look at this. And um, and I, I just want to say the Lord met me in that moment, and I'm, I'm glad for that, because what Paul is telling us to do is not just think happy thoughts. He's, he's pressing into the gospel still. And so we're going to explore that today, and so we're going to call our study Finding Peace in the Storms of Life. This is actually part two of what we started to, to describe last week. And this passage begins with these words, finally, brothers. And what we need to know is that word finally, it can take in our English language, a connotation of, of changing the subject or making one last point. But in the Greek, it can mean that. But it can also mean next or beyond that. And so we're picking up the same thought that Paul had as we looked at last week in verses 4 through 7. And I just want to go over that real fast just in case you weren't here with us or just to refresh our memory. Back in verse 4, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Mind you, Paul has been sitting in prison for four years and chains for Christ. He's not having, you know, in a sense, his best life now in terms of ease and comfort and vacations. Uh, he, he's been suffering. But nevertheless, in, in the midst of that journey of suffering, he's found the ability to rejoice. And we made the, the comment last week that that's a present tense imperative, which can be translated, keep on rejoicing in the Lord at all times. I will say it again, keep on rejoicing. I don't know about you, but for me, that was encouraging because there are times in life where you don't feel like it. But Paul is pressing us to keep on rejoicing. He says in verse 5, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And we made the note that Paul is not saying to not ever feel anything, but he is saying don't get stuck in this moment, this worry, this anxiety, when it comes storming into your life because you're not facing it alone. Paul says the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We made the observation that Paul gives us really three essential tools in these verses of prayer, thanksgiving, and supplications. We're not going to go over all of that, but that's the context and the backdrop that is going to pick us up where we are today. But before we get there, he says in verse 7, when you do this, when you, when you take your anxious, worried, burdened heart before the Lord in prayer, something happens. He says the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so we made this note that when we pray, we are bringing our anxious hearts into the presence of the God of peace. And there, God's peace stands ready to guard our hearts and minds as we cry out to him for help. That's where God meets us. He doesn't want you just to, to, to gloss over what you're feeling or to, to pretend like you're not anxious when you are. He wants you to bring that to him because he wants to meet you in that moment. And so in addition to those three tools that we looked at this last week, Paul's going to add in this next thought two more tools. One is filling our mind, and the other is imitation. So he says, finally, brothers, or, or next, or beyond what I just said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything 
worthy of praise. Think about these things. My friends, I want you to notice how radically different what Paul is saying here than almost everything that we hear in our world today. Everywhere our world tells us to find peace by emptying our minds. But the Apostle Paul tells us we'll find peace by filling our minds. Don't you see this on blogs and YouTube videos? How to find peace. Empty your mind. Find this this Zen state where you can just kind of hover above life and not be affected by anything. That's radically different than what disciples of Jesus are called to do. Everywhere our world tells us to find peace by emptying our minds, but the Apostle Paul tells us to find peace by filling our minds. And I want us just to list this as bullet points and just go over this um, briefly. The first statement he says is, whatever is true. That adjective means that which accords with the actual state of reality, conforms to reality or fact. And Paul is not leaving what he's been talking about this whole time, which is Jesus. He's actually going deeper into the mystery of the gospel. Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we want to think about what is true, Paul's not just saying, find comfort in the fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4. He's driving us deeper into the gospel, deeper into this mystery of the faith. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate. He answered him, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, whoever is of the truth listens to my voice. What an incredible statement in and of itself. But this one who is the way, the truth, and the life is standing right in front of Pilate, and he can't even see it. Jesus also said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is the truth, and he's all about the truth. He tells us the truth about God. He tells us the truth about ourselves. There's more to these bullet points. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable. I'm just going to kind of run through these next ones kind of uh, quickly here. Um, It's going to be just maybe just a bit academic because we think about these definitions. But then I'm going to follow it up by a story, and I think you'll see why this clicks. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. That, That word honorable means deserving or winning honor and respect. People and actions that are worthy of esteem and praise. Paul says, whatever is just. Just is an adjective that means guided by truth, justice, and fairness, based on what is right or righteous and lawful. He also wants you to think about what is pure. Pure is is based on a root word in this Greek for holy, or for holiness. Describes that which is free from contamination or pollution, containing nothing inappropriate. He also says, whatever is lovely. I want you to think about this. Whatever is lovely. Lovely is that which is pleasing, or beautiful, or attractive, enjoyable, delightful, inspiring love or affection. Paul says, whatever is commendable, I want you to think about Commendable is an adjective which means worthy of being commended or praised, laudable, praiseworthy, of good, and reputable report. And then he, he says, if there's any excellence, excellence means that which is virtuous, speaking especially of moral excellence, goodness. And then he says, if anything is worthy of praise, 
It's like he's, he's, he's running out of adjectives to use. <laughs> Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. If anything is worthy of praise, think on these things. That word think means to reflect upon, to, to ponder, to take things into account, to consider. Now, there is a sense in which these adjectives can describe a lot of things in this world. But the way Paul is coming at it, anything in this world that might happen to fit these are like sunbeams. And, and what Christians are called to do is, is to be able to trace those beams from the sun back to its origin. Everything that is true, everything that is just, everything that is pure, commendable, finds its, its origin point in God. Now remember, my friends, for the Apostle Paul, reality is now and forever defined by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. So he hasn't stopped talking about that when he gives us this list of things to fill our minds with. He's actually going deeper into it. Or the way he might put it, as we take those words from a, a different context as in his letter to the Corinthians, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's essentially what he's calling us to do here. And I find this to be encouraging because our thoughts can be just bombarded by tragedy and brokenness and everything that is untrue and impure in this world. But let me tell you how this came to focus for me this week. As I was thinking through this tragedy that happened in Nashville, which has just been mirrored over and over and over again in our nation, I was reading some different articles about it, and then I, I was in Christianity Today with an article they were using to, uh, to describe that tragedy in Nashville, and I got to the end of it, and I saw this other link and I had not followed up on what had happened there. And this link was to uh, the testimony in court that happened on February 15th, or this was when the report happened, about what uh, the, the people there were testifying to. And so the, the title that got my attention was Buffalo uh, Survivors to Shooter. You will not escape the fury of the Almighty. And the sub line there is at Wednesday's hearing, um, sentencing hearing, family members quote scripture, and even, I'm sorry, quote scripture, and evoke, that's the word, God's vengeance and mercy. And so I was like, okay, I want to see what this was about. And so as I read the article, it said this. Think about this in light of what we've just been talking about. At the sentencing hearing in New York State Court, Kimberly Salter, whose husband had been murdered by this self-described racist, stated that God is love, and he offers love to each and every one of us. The widow recited John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then she read the entirety of Psalm 35, which is an imprecatory prayer. It says this, Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurts. Let them be like chaff before the wind, and the angel of the Lord chase them. Let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders them. Here this, this widow is quoting from the gospel and from the book of Psalms. And in court, she's thinking through these things that are true and lovely and honorable, commendable. The article went on said, Michelle Spite, who lost an aunt and a cousin in the shooting, read a statement from Pamela Young Pritchett, the daughter of victim Pearl Young. She mentioned that Young had, not, uh, had been shot several times so the family could not have an open casket at her funeral. Pritchett said she had to decide 
whether that last image of her mother's disfigured face would, quote-unquote, take up residency in my mind. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise, she read from Philippians. This, she said, will take up residency in my mind. Then Spite read a statement from Fred Morrison, whose brother Marcus Morrison was killed. Morrison shared that his mother, since her son's death, had a stroke and can't speak. Spite turned to face the shooter and read from Morrison's statement. There is one that sees all, and you will not escape the fury of the Almighty. One scripture is true in the Bible. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and he will repay. People clapped in the courtroom. I pray that he is merciful, because I too need mercy, she read on. I pray that he is merciful to let you live so that you can be reminded of the innocent blood behind your calculated, sinister, demonic act that caused my beloved brother to be snatched from our family. If you do not know God, I invite you to find him, because you are going to need him. With deep sorrow, Fred Morrison, brother of Margus Morrison. Do you see how some of these followers of Jesus are not doing what the world says to do in the wake of a tragedy, which is just to think happy thoughts. They are thinking on what is true and what is just, what is commendable, what is honorable. And in doing so, my friends, can you see them leaning into the story of Jesus? I put this slide up from time to time, and it's the four-part story of the gospel. Creation, where God created this world for people like you and me to, to live and to reign as kings and queens in partnership with him. But the fall happened where mankind rebelled against the creator. And Jesus came to make atonement, as we were saying about earlier, so that people who have sinned against God can find forgiveness and acceptance and welcome into his eternal kingdom. And of course, looking to that day of restoration when evil will be wiped clean from this planet so that, as the scriptures describe it, it's the new heavens and new earth. They're not thinking happy thoughts in the way of of denying reality, the thinking thoughts that help them live further into it. You see, for Paul, the attributes that should take up residence in our mind belong preeminently to Jesus and his coming kingdom. Paul continues in verse 9. Whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul knows that they need to see someone modeling what he's talking about here. And he, he recalls for them, or asks them to recall to mind, the things that, that they have learned, they've received, they've heard and seen in Paul. Now remember, Paul helped start this church ten years previous. He spent the last four years in prison. But he helped them originally get that church up and going. And as you know the story from the book of Acts, Paul made his way to Philippi. And there he was preaching to some people that were out by the river, and there he proclaimed to them the gospel of Jesus. And we're told in Scripture that he met this woman named Lydia, an influential person who was a seller of a purple cloth. This is a, a fine garment in the day that, that really only the rich people could afford. And there the Lord opened her heart to receive the things that Paul had talked about. And she invited her, uh, him to her house, and, and she was baptized in her household with her. And then Paul one day was going out to pray. He was walking through the city, and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden there was this 
um, kind of almost a riot that took place as people realized that if they listened to what Paul was saying, they're going to lose money because they have people who are prophesying in certain ways and believing in certain gods and selling relics to pray for. And so this, this mob took them and captured them. And this is what the book of Acts tells us. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept and practice. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony, and the people living in Philippi had Roman citizenship. It was little Rome. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. I mean, can you imagine this, this turn of events? I mean, Paul just went from the heights of seeing people converted as he told them about the gospel of Jesus. And the next day he's walking through the city and this mob attacks him and his friend Silas, beating them. I mean, worst nightmare stuff, right? Stripped them, beat them, threw them in the prison. And the jailer, having received this order, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. We're told that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Talk about a miracle taking place. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. If you're a Roman guard and you lose a prisoner, it's the death sentence for you. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them unto his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And the magistrates, they were afraid when they heard that they, speaking of Paul and Silas, were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to him and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out from the prison and visited Lydia, the first convert, remember? And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So when Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, what had they received and heard from Paul? What were they to put into practice? In a word, they were putting into practice what Paul was trying to teach them. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. They saw a person who was so dialed in on the gospel of Jesus, whose thoughts were continually revolving around spreading the good news of Jesus, that they were willing to suffer anything. And they saw Paul rejoicing in prison, still suffering from the blows they'd beaten upon him. And now they witness him in Rome, in prison, four years, still rejoicing in the Lord, still bringing his anxious heart before the Lord, still seeking the peace of God in the midst of his storm. So Paul tells them to do these things. And he says, the peace of God will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. 
That phrase, the God of peace, is used five times in the New Testament. Of course, the New Testament word for peace uh, is the same, it mirrors the Old Testament word for shalom. And if you know anything about that word shalom, it just doesn't mean an absence of conflict. It means the, the presence of, of flourishing. It's what God desires for his entire creation. Let me just point out a couple of those verses that describe the God of peace. This one, taken from the book of Hebrews, speaks to God's power. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This God of peace is a God who is powerful and brought Christ back from the dead. This next verse popped into my mind this last week. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. These are words that Paul spoke to the Romans. This popped back into my mind this last week because, as I mentioned in the introduction to my message, uh, our car was still in the shop, and so I had to take Heather to work on, on Tuesday morning. And we were weeping as we said goodbye, just over, overwhelmed with sorrow. And um, I, I, I pulled up a blues list on Spotify. Because <laughs> I've been listening to blues a lot lately. Hopefully you don't see that reflected too much in my preaching. <laughs> but I pulled up a blues list because in many ways, uh, blues are laments. In fact, I read an article one time that described blues music as kind of the a modern equivalent to some of the ancient psalms of lament. So I pulled up this list, and I listened to one song that talked about having the blues worse than I've ever known. And as I listened to that song, I was like, I'm feeling that in this moment. And then the next song came up. I don't know if you heard this song by Robert Plant, but I had completely forgotten about it. Yeah, that Robert Plant. And this bluesy voice saying these words, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. I'm going to pray until they tear your kingdom down. Pray till they tear your kingdom down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. This is probably really weird for your pastor to say, but in that moment, as I was overwhelmed by sorrow, Robert Plant led me in worship, reminding me that Satan's kingdom is not forever. There will be a day when all shootings will cease. God in Christ will soon crush Satan's head under your feet. Is that a happy thought? I don't know. But it's a truthful thought. It's a just thought. It's an honorable thought. It's a commendable thought. It is an excellent thought. It is worthy of praise. Just one more note on this passage we've been looking at here. I want to say that maybe, I'm not going to die on this sword, but just maybe the most important word in Philippians 4, 4 through 9, is the little word and. Did you catch it when we, when we studied through this? He said back in verse 5, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, according to Paul, he says, when we bring our anxious hearts before the Lord, 
and just marinates there before him. Something happens, and, conjunction, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then in the passage we're looking at today, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is just Paul echoing what the scriptures everywhere say. For example, in the book of Isaiah, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. That's from the 26th chapter of Isaiah. Isn't that beautiful? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. He trusts in you. Trust the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. This is what Paul has been telling his friends in Philippi. He wants them to be renewed in their thinking. He wants them to take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. He's wanting them to, to stay their minds on the rock of their salvation. So just two points of application, my friends. The first one is this. Let's fill our minds with the good news about Jesus and his coming kingdom. You know this passage from the book of Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God wants us in the midst of the sorrow and the brokenness and the tragedy of this world to have our minds renewed. And that comes preeminently to us in the gospel of Jesus, which we read about in the scriptures. But it's also good to listen to these truths spoken in song as well. This is what happened to me that Tuesday morning as I was driving back from dropping my wife off, listening to that song by Robert Plant, Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. What was happening to me in that moment? My mind was being renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, Jesus was, we could say is, the epitome of everything that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And the fact that he, on this day some 2,000 years ago, we call today Palm Sunday, the day when he entered into Jerusalem for these cheering crowds, only later in the week to be executed, we see that Jesus bore in his body everything that is untrue, dishonorable, unjust, impure, unlovely, blameworthy, detestable, and worthy of condemnation. That's why we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what the author of the book of Hebrews says. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not just thinking happy thoughts, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the king of God's kingdom is worthy of taking every thought captive, making them obedient to Christ. This is what Paul is after here. This is why so much of the Christian life is won and lost in the way that we think. So as we think about the king, we think about his coming kingdom, and that day when Satan's kingdom will fall, we look forward to it in anticipation. The way Peter put it, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, and a new earth 
where righteousness dwells. The way things are right now, my friends, is not the way they will always be. There is a day coming when God will crush Satan's head under his foot. It's probably been about three years since I've mentioned this message I heard by Sam Storms called Joyous Eternal Increase. It's, he was at a conference speaking about uh, the work of Jonathan Edwards, and specifically Jonathan Edwards' work on heaven, the new heavens and new earth. And in it, he said this. Think of the implications of what is being said. When we get to heaven, there will be, said Jonathan Edwards, quote, nothing which shall offend the most delicate eye. Storms goes on and says, in other words, nothing that is abrasive or irritating, agitating or hurtful, nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting or unkind, nothing sad, bad or mad, nothing harsh, impatient, ungrateful or unworthy, nothing weak or sick or broken or foolish, nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved or disgusting, nothing uh, polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid, nothing dark, dismal, dismaying, or degrading, nothing blameworthy, blemished, blasphemous, or blighted, nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading, nothing grotesque, or grievous, hideous, or insidious, nothing illicit, or illegal, lascivious, or lustful, nothing marred, or mutilated, misaligned, or misinformed, Nothing nasty or naughty or offensive or odious. Nothing rancid or rude, spoiled or soiled. Nothing tawdry or tainted, tasteless or tempting. Nothing vile or vicious, wasteful and wanting. Wherever you turn, your eyes will see nothing but glory and grandeur, beauty and brightness, purity and perfection, splendor and satisfaction, and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. We will see only in all that is adorable and affectionate, beautiful and bright, brilliant and bountiful, delightful and delicious, delectable and dazzling, elegant and exciting, fascinating and fruitful, glorious and grand, gracious and good, happy and holy healthy and whole, joyful and jubilant, lovely and luscious, majestic and marvelous, opulent and overwhelming, radiant and resplendent, splendid and sublime, sweet and savoring, tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. My friends, I know that sometimes this world is overwhelming. Paul knows how exhausting it can be to live in this world. But to fix our eyes on Jesus and his coming kingdom is to be reminded that there will be a day when all of that will change. And instead of being overwhelmed by how terrible this world can be at times, we'll be overwhelmed by how good the new heavens and new earth are. You're going to need a glorified body to be able to withstand the sensation of euphoria you will find in the presence of Jesus. You're going to need supernatural power to withstand just one vision and vista of glory after another. My friends, it is coming. Hang in there. Let's fill our minds with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. But let's also do this, my friends. We need to help each other put into practice these things. I need your help, and you need my help. I get to help in some ways every Sunday by standing up here and talking about the gospel of Jesus. 
But we need to help one another when we're in conversations, when we get that diagnostic from the doctor that is not good, when a loved one or even a pet passes away and we're overwhelmed with waves of sorrow. We need it when we feel like everything is breaking bad and wonder if anything will break good. You see, we need this. It's also been a little bit since I've shared this story with you, and I brought it back up because I've read this book over the course of these, um, these weeks leading up to Easter. And it's written by a man named J. Todd Billings, Rejoicing Lament, and he's a scholar. But he opens up this book, Rejoicing and Lament was such a strange title. Isn't that kind of weird? How do you rejoice and lament? So it, of course, grabbed my attention. I, I got this book and read it. But um, in this book, he opens up, by, but talk about, this is not theoretical for him. He had to, to really think about what it would mean to rejoice even in sorrow. And he tells us in the introduction to this book that he was diagnosed at age 35 with incurable bone cancer. He had adopted a girl not too long before that, and he and his family were were overcome with grief, and being a a member and participant at his local church, he he got up the next Sunday and and told the bad, heartbreaking news to his congregation. He didn't know how much longer he had to live. But in the wake of that, he didn't want to do it, but in the wake of that, people said all kinds of things, as, as people do. But he said, the thing that got me the most was what a young autistic girl said to him in the form of a card. And it simply said this, get, get well soon. Jesus loves you. God is bigger than your cancer. And he said that this was the one thing among everything that was said that grabbed hold of his heart and helped him to see that it's not all bad news. And he said this helped him to remember this question from the Heidelberg Catechism which asked this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well, that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. As he described what was happening, he had lost sight of the goodness of God. Oftentimes when when bad news hits us, it's like it's right here in front of us. If you were to put your fist like right in front of your face, about a couple inches out and just stare into it, yes, you can kind of see things on the periphery, but what looms large is what's right there. And so in this moment, as this autistic girl reminded him that God is bigger than your cancer, all of a sudden that, that fist moved in front of his face and he was able to see Jesus again. I bring that story up, my friends, because you and I need to help each other remember these things and to push them into practice. So Mercy Hill, may the fact that you belong in body and soul in life and in death, not to yourself, but to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, comfort you in the storm of life.